Thank you for joining us on this episode of MSP 1337, a podcast dedicated to helping MSPs and their clients navigate cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is a journey, but it doesn't mean you have to travel alone. I'm your host, Chris Johnson, and before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Pinpoint Solutions, a consulting firm dedicated to providing cybersecurity leadership and guidance to MSPs and their clients. Think of us as your virtual CISO or security advisor. Head on over to pinpointsolutions.com to find out more. Now on with the show. Welcome everybody to this episode of MSP 1337. I'm joined this week by Craig Taylor of CyberHoot to talk about people. Uh, we've talked about everything, including people on almost every episode going back 20 plus episodes. People seem to be a common denominator on every episode. For those of you that don't know, uh, Craig Taylor is a CISO, has been a CISO for large companies. And I asked him on this show because while this isn't an episode about his company, Cyberhoot, the conversation, and we, we were talking about this before the show, the conversation by and large, is why did he create Cyberhoot? And, and I think one can say this about a lot of the LMS platforms that are out there. You know, why were they created? We all would kind of say from a learning perspective, it makes sense. So, Craig, today we're talking about cybersecurity. People are a common denominator. And one of the challenges that you and I were talking about is we can consume LMS platform content all day long. We can go and watch the cyber videos. We can watch YouTube content and we can become educated on things that are important to our employers, to our career paths. But one of the things that has always been a challenge is how do we track that and ensure that the metrics that we're collecting are helping increase our security, cybersecurity posture in such a way that everybody is on board with and, and is kind of on the same playing field. It's not you picked ITU, I pick Cyberary, someone pick something else. And so I think this is important for everybody here. Um, and it's not specific to what you built per se, but more why you built it. So tell me a little bit as a CISO going back in time, what made you wake up one day and say, I need to create something that someday may become Cyberhoot, but that's not, that's not how this started, right? Right, right, Chris. Thank you for that question. And, and, and I think you've, you're hit on something that is really fundamental to cybersecurity the world over, and that's the people. Um, as a practitioner for 20 plus years, as a CISO with companies in the Fortune 1000 space and down to the SMB space with uh, MSPs both, 25 years ago I worked for an MSP and, and I, I still work for a, a CISO as a CISO at MSP. People are your weakest link. You, there, it's not a it's not a throwaway statement when you say if you have a chain and you have your weakest link is how weak you are. Mm -hmm. A person can be that weak link and, and more often than not across any enterprise that I've been a CISO at, the biggest calamities have been the result of a person that made a mistake. Right. That mistake can be carelessness. It can be accidental. But what I don't think it can be as a CISO is from a lack of awareness or knowledge. In other words, my job, I can't fix stupid. People will make mistakes. Mm -hmm. What I can fix is someone that never knew better. 
you can graduate. The ignorance model. The ignorance, right. I'll tell you this. I've written articles. If you Google um, Craig Taylor, the importance of cybersecurity in our curriculum, you'll see an article I wrote four years ago about our school systems, our educational systems are dropping the ball on teaching us how to securely operate a computer. We have every single job, as far as I know, there's very few jobs right now that you don't need to touch a computer for. And we graduate people from MIT and, and all these great universities up and down the seaboard all over the world, and you get zero hours of cybersecurity training to identify a phishing attack, to understand the importance of password hygiene, to know that social engineering is a thing. And when you publish all of your personal data on your social media profiles, people can easily take advantage of that to create a very convincing spear phishing attack against you. We don't teach any of that whatsoever. So I think it's I think it's worse than that. Uh, and the reason why I say that is it's not just the not teaching it part. Um, we touched on this right before we were talking. I'm like, CIS top 20 is a big deal with MSP Ignite and the Secure Outcomes Program and Critical Six, right? Controls one through six. There's some alluding to the need to train your staff, but it's with a completely different context, right? It's like, don't implement firewalls that you're not familiar or have trained on, right? Like that's that's really the in the first six it's not until we get to control 17 that we talk about security awareness training so you and i were talking about earlier like okay what framework has that front and center as like where we start we talked about hipaa hipaa's got some you know security awareness training it's very specific to protecting patient health information it's not a general or more generic guide to yeah it's not a cybersecurity like hygiene practice it's a more the 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 cia model or, or the phi model of just for one little thing which is which is misleading at best um and then, and then you and i said pci right pci's got it in there it's number 12 yep. um nist has elements of it throughout the framework but it's like I'm, I'm running up against you talked about it from the education standpoint and yet why would we educate on it when we're not prioritizing it, even when we create laws and frameworks around doing it? Right. It seems as though the industry has missed the boat in terms of recommending control number one mm -hmm. to be train your users. Right. And you asked me earlier, you know, I, I did found Cyberhoot and I did it for a few reasons, but one of them is that the small to medium sized business, 500 employees or fewer, has such a finite amount of time and money to spend on cybersecurity, and they have a, a myriad of choices on what they could do. If you listen to any vendor, their golden nugget or silver bullet is gonna solve the problem. But at the end of the day, the single best and simplest thing you can do to protect your business and to go harden those links in your chain from you know copper links to iron links, sure. train your users. It's not a panacea. You're still going to have to do other things, but training your users, your employees, so they don't make silly mistakes with phishing right. or malware or you know downloading or clicking links or the same password everywhere is to train them. Because, look, I, I'm, I generally believe the world's full of good people. Not everyone, but there's generally people, employees, they want to do the right thing. 
but how can you do the right thing if you don't know what the right thing is? Well, this this is kind of a, an interesting quandary I think that we're in is because if I have a conversation with a prospective client about cybersecurity, just, just a conversation, we're talking generic conversation and, you know, things like what happens in the news comes up, you know, do you use this vendor versus this vendor, which we never had those conversations before because the clients didn't care. They didn't know to care. Um, I think sort of it's kind of in, in the vein of what you've done in CyberHoot, it's figuring out what to pick to train them on as well. Right. So if I think about uh, this came up with one of my clients that th they're using LastPass, enterprise version of LastPass, they're using it for all of their employees. And one fundamental problem, they don't truly understand how LastPass works outside of the understanding of it generates good secure passwords and it allows me to share them uh, securely. Mm -hmm. What it didn't educate them on is that depending on how this password gets input into authenticating against whatever system it is, I have the opportunity to go save. And now I have the plain text version of that password, right? So now I don't need to go into LastPass anymore. All it took was, I think it was like one LastPass video clip that talked about how to use it, how to implement it. And all of a sudden I got 10 people using a tool the way it was intended and solving the problem that they set out to solve. That's just an example. It's its not obviously uh, a definitive across the board. This is how easy it is across the board. But, you know, talk to me about, that's one example. I know you're a big LastPass fan. Maybe we should get them to sponsor the show. Yeah. Um, but but the, the point is, if I think about vendors that we work with, and I think about our approach to talking to clients, how do we have conversations around, you've been using XYZ product for the last decade, let's say it's Outlook. The client has no idea what securing that product or that app looks like. They're either relying on you to do it mm -hmm. or they're saying, whatever you do, don't interrupt my productivity and my efficiency with this tool or this app. You're right. So, uh, and I'm, I wanted to just bring a fact to the table because I think it illustrates the point. Any product that you use in a company can be configured securely or insecurely, right? We have, you were you and I were talking about email earlier and there's ways to send email over port 25, which is unencrypted, or over TLS and SSL, which is encrypted. You much rather send this stuff over an encrypted uh, communication channel to protect the content of the, that email. Generally speaking, any, any popular email provider today is sending all of their messages from one mail relay to another encrypted so as long as you're using big name companies like microsoft and google and uh, hotmail and all of, all the ones like that you're going to have your email is going to be well protected between the mail, mail relays when sure. you get into third parties you might get into trouble <clears throat> but 0365 doesn't come natively secured just because it's microsoft you still have to enable two-factor authentication for any novel connection into OWA or into your O365. Every MSP out there today should stop what they're doing, go and assess how many clients they have that are not using 2FA on their O365 environment and fix it today because business email compromise happens uh, uh, for that reason. Every Microsoft, day. Every day. Microsoft put this statistic out. CyberHoot codified it in last October. We published a daily infographic 
on different topics, one of which was in January of 2020, Microsoft published that they had 1.7 million accounts compromised in January, in one month. That's a hell of a lot. That gives you some idea of how many accounts they have in, in aggregate. It must be hundreds of millions. But 99.9% of those compromised accounts did not have 2FA enabled, two-factor authentication. Something you know, your password, with something you have, a cell phone that can get a text message right. or a, or a one-time token that you generate with a, a reader or something like that. So applications are not secure or insecure. It's how you set them up and configure them. So uh, let me ask you a question. Let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Microsoft's been around a long time, like a long time. Like when I first used a computer, Microsoft existed. Windows 3.1 user from the beginning, yeah. Yeah, I remember the big deal of Windows 95 and loading that via floppy disk. And I was so excited because it was oh, like, crazy. you know, 13 floppies in. And I'm like, I'm almost done. Yeah. Um, the question is, if your product, so we, and I actually had this conversation on 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 last week's podcast, part two of, of um, evaluating vendors. And that is, there is the product can be configured securely, or I can create a configuration that by adding another product layered in, I'm securing that product because they've chosen not to spend energy in that space. You see it more often than not when you have like API integrations where it's like, they're an all or nothing. And it's like, well, I have the vendor that I'm working with can actually reduce what it accepts. Therefore, I'm not just sending data back and forth, right? Microsoft didn't start out with these features that we're talking about. They didn't start out when 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 Office or Outlook first came on the market. It didn't have an option for 2FA. Like those are things that have been added over time. Microsoft's been around. Right, right. They didn't even support 14 character passwords or longer. You had you were limited to short passwords for up until two years ago. It was crazy. So the uh the feature set that has come along with the products that are say native and by default available today, they're not like an extra cost to say, turn on 2FA. They're not going to go, oh, that'll be an uptick of a dollar a month. Is there an obligation at this point on our vendors to instead of have default enablement be like no criteria for security versus some level of security? Like, isn't there some obligation here? Because this takes into the account that a vendor assumes ignorance on the part of the client. They're, they're ignorant to the fact that this client is knows nothing and assumes they know enough to be secure. And yet, I mean, you look at all the users that join and sign up for 365 as the example. How many of those users are signing up for a product? that out of sheer ignorance, that's not gonna be corrected overnight because you don't know what you don't know, that they're gonna go in and create a secure configuration and start sending secure email and reduce the probability of being compromised as they use that account to log into 25, 50 other things because it's convenient to just say, oh yeah, log in with my 365. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and the best example of that, I think, is the RMM tools about two and a half years ago, you could just, username and password authenticate into the keys to the kingdom and have access to any and all customers. Sure. And then the FBI started noticing that nation states, mafia, organized crime was attacking the RMM vendors 
you know, ConnectWise, Kaseya, and uh, Continuum. And so these vendors responded and forced two-factor authentication. Right. You couldn't turn it off anymore. Right. And you had to use it. And that's an example of a vendor stepping up and doing the right thing, albeit at the um, after a lot of damage had been done. But your point is valid. If you want to be a responsible vendor, and arguably, I would say, if you want to stay in business, you've got to create secure configurations that are easy and enforced so that your users don't have a loaded gun pointing at their shoe or their foot and are accidentally pulling the trigger by deploying this stuff and not knowing any better. Right. The snap is over the trigger, not the hammer. <laughs> I, I ran into this, so I, I can I can openly admit I've made a couple of you know mistakes regarding uh, configurations of software, et cetera. Uh, I had a couple of years ago. It's been several years now. Uh, I was using a product called AppGuru that uh, was is a log me in product. I'm not even sure it's still around, but it was it was really slick because what it would do is it allow you to API into 365 uh, Google Works workplace and, and some others. And you can go in and look at the posture. Like, do I have two-factor authentication turned on? Uh, what what apps are being used? Like uh, in this particular case, our audit was, they believed that all data that's being generated, all documents that were being generated were being done in Google Enterprise, in Google Drive. Right. And what we found was that the top 10 storage locations for files um, Google didn't make the top, I think they made the top eight, but they weren't the top five. And number one was like, uh, I think it was Box or some other. Dropbox, drop, Box, drop. yep. Yeah, so we had, so in, in, this, in this list of storage for the 750 plus employees, we had Dropbox, SugarSync, OneDrive, Google Drive Business, Google Drive Personal, um, and I'm gonna fail to mention all of them, but it was a lot. In fact, I think there was close to 20 different uh, file sync share apps that were being used across this environment. And one of the jobs that I had was to sort of run this policy assessment against like uh, high level employees in the organization and to come back with like, by the way, 30% of all documents generated are being done by two people in your organization. Kind of strange. I think we should look at it more closely kind of thing. Well, anyways, we finished the audit and I went into this product and I deleted the policy I didn't pay very close attention to what I clicked on because it said, after I hit delete on the policy, it said, do you also want to delete the users associated with this policy? And I'm like, yep. I was thinking associated with the policy, like that, that policy would be disconnected from the users. I deleted 750 employees from Google Enterprise. Yeah. Problem well, number one. So that's a three-click, four-click process to restore each user. I won't get into the nightmare that that was, but by and large, we didn't get fired. I, I saved it, and and we came out uh, uh, the plus side for that one. Just this week, I made my second Google mistake. I turned on enforce two-step verification on Google after this date. There's a checkbox right below that that says, let employees know that they have until this date to turn on two-step verification <laughs> with so steps on how to do it. Out. So I, I locked them all out. Not only that, this is where I think a vendor needs to step up. I, you know, I'm going to pass the blame now to someone else. I'll just say that it's not my fault anymore. When I turn on enforced two-factor authentication, the only person that can actually turn on the two-step verification in Google is the actual end user for that account. 
So I can turn it on and enforce it and prevent you from ever logging in, but I can't enable two-factor authentication for you. I can only enforce it. There needs to be a grace period of the first login so that you get it, told. You so it, so it does app. have that. That's a step that I have to take Ah. as opposed to like, why not just say it? Like, let's just use this as an example. I have right now that they can turn it on. It's like, I have that enabled, right? It's not required, but it's enabled. Why would I not have as a vendor, like let my end users know, just like Google Chrome browser will tell you, hey, by the way, the password you just used, that's compromised in XYZ database or that right. password's not secure. Why would I not do the same thing with like a product like Google Workspace or Workplace, whatever it's called, where when you log in, it says, by the way, I've noticed you haven't turned on two-step verification. Click here to activate now. Like right. how many people would just click on it and do it? A responsible company that is um, looking after security first, right? Right. They're talking about this in a lot of the development seminars that you want to design your product with security at the beginning, not retrofit it on because right. then it's too late. Google ought to have put in reminders that, hey, 99.9% .9 of the compromised Google accounts don't have 2FA. Do you want to turn it on right now? Right. Good See, job. But again, you know, that's the security as an afterthought instead of security at inception. So right. uh, we did go off a little bit on, on a, a, a rabbit trail here. So I want to get back to the, the learning process, because really, I think the reason for this episode is 100% tied to the CIS control 17. It's control 12, like you said, in or category 12 in PCI. It comes up elsewhere in other frameworks, but it's not a primary focus of the frameworks. It's right. not It's not the leader, right? It's not the lead indicator that we're using to, to look at security maturity. And it's not culturally the norm right now to say, hey, let's talk about our security awareness training in our organization. So going back to, you didn't create CyberHoot because you had a dream, I don't think. Uh, CyberHoot came out of a necessity as a CISO to solve a problem. That's exactly right, yeah. The, the problem of not enough time and money to spend on everything that needs to be done. So where do you get the most bang on bang for your buck? Where do you get the most benefit for your time? It's in awareness training. You have to address the weakest link. It's usually, I used to joke, and, and I think you and I have joked about this. There is this thing called the OSI model in, in computers, which yep. is how computers talk to one another. Yep. The, the seven layer, layers. Well, it is the seventh layer, but the eighth layer of the OSI model is the person in the chair. Right. Right. And we have jokes. We can talk about different jokes about those people making mistakes. Or between the chair and the screen. The, yes, the Pebcac error. <laughs> right? Yeah. So the ID ten T. Exactly. That's the uh that's the uh HIPAA code for it. Oh yeah, exactly. So so you have to address that weak link. And once you've addressed that, then you can move on to all these other things and, and including the configuration of applications which we 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 went through today. You, you can't assume that because you're working with a Fortune 1000 vendor that everything they do is secure. You have to know what you're doing, rely on an MSP to set it up securely with 2FA and so on. But at the end of the day, your users, they need governance policies that say, well, if you have critical and sensitive data like social security numbers or HIPAA files, can you really email those out? Can you store them in Dropbox or can't you? You have prescriptions that prevent that. That's educating your users on what they're allowed to do and not allowed to do. You train them on the attacks. 
you guide them with policies and then through things like you know automated tools if it's not cyber something else you track their compliance to it because you can't have nine out of ten people trained up because that one person is that weak link that's going to break and you're right. going to be breached i turned i turned on uh, data leak prevention a while back and uh so the department of education for the state uh for a state <laughs> i won't say the state <laughs> A state that you a state like one of them. Yeah. I might live there. I might not. Um, they had this uh, form for filling out details for a grant application that requires a lot of information. That's very much going to include PII, right? It's going to have data in there that could be potentially uh, risky to just put into a Google form, regardless of whether or not the security uh, the security is is dialed in the way it should be. It's that the security is. Um, I don't know what their security is, right? So DLP kicks in and says, you can't put data here. What's interesting is as soon as I log in with a uh, personal Gmail account that's not associated with that, problem goes away, right, for the user. And it's like, what are we doing where I can't even get enough across to my end users? They're like, but I have to do it. It's like, not this way. There's got to be a different way. And when at a state level, you're not, encouraging that more secure method it, it just it's that that barrier that makes it that much longer for us to get it done yeah completely agree so um craig all it, together yeah so craig um i don't know that we answered the question as much as we talked about the types of answers that we would like to hear but the reality is education is something that can be done with with products and tools like CyberHoot. And, and I say CyberHoot because I know that it's designed and built for the SMB. And so I think about what a lot of our MSPs and their clients are going through. And the hardest or one of the biggest challenges we have is the educating the unwilling. Um, I think it's important uh, what you're doing with CyberHoot. And I know that there are some other vendors out there that have similar uh, approaches to education and training with their, with their uh, clients. But I want to just say thank you for the efforts that you're doing. I know that you didn't start out with the idea of like, this is going to be a, a revenue generating model for you. But the reality was you have to solve this problem. And that's the byproduct of, of addressing that problem. So, so I want to say thank you. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Uh, where can people find you, Craig? Cyberhoot.com is where you can find me. You can email me any questions, Craig at Cyberhoot.com. All right. Well, hey, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been an episode of MSP 1337. Thanks and have a great week. Thanks, Chris.